guys, we made it to episode three of the Buy a Thread podcast. I'm so grateful to all you guys who have been listening. It's been so fun. I've been surprising myself by how fun it's been recording, editing these episodes. So I'm so thankful and I'm so excited for you guys to hear this interview. I'm excited for all of them, obviously, but it's really crazy to me still sometimes getting to talk to people who I've known about for so many years, even though I haven't met them in real life. And that's this guest. Elisa Donovan. You know her if you've turned on the TV or seen a movie in the past like two decades. You definitely know her and love her. First of all, she starred as the iconic fashion queen Amber in both the film and TV versions of Frickin' Clueless, which I think changed the world and continues to change the world. Um, as I talk about in this episode, I saw coincidentally a live reading of the film in its entirety at Clusterfest here in San Francisco. Um, and I mean, the enthusiasm from the crowd was overwhelming. People were reciting every line. Issa Rae, another one of my heroes, played Cher. And Alana Glazer, another one of my heroes, played Ty. And the entire cast was just so excited to be a part of it. And everyone watching was, it it was really an experience. So obviously an honor to talk to the original Amber right here. But in addition to that role, she also played the ultimate bad girl, Ginger, on Beverly Hills 90210, one of my earliest and most intense television obsessions still in my heart every day. And she starred for three seasons on one of the very best TGIF staples, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. So you know her, you love her. I mean, I've been following her career for so long. In addition to those, she's also appeared in dozens of other shows and movies, and she's also an incredibly talented writer and producer, which we talk about uh, her latest projects in this episode. And the way I kind of really connected with her before we ever even met was that she's a really outspoken advocate for eating disorder recovery, and she's so honest and transparent about her own experience, which we get into a lot in this conversation. Please welcome the incredible Elisa Donovan. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I am very happy to be here. I'm so grateful that we were introduced and I have a million questions for you and we've already covered a lot, but we're going to dive deep again. But I've read a little bit about your background and clearly I've, I've been following you for so many years, but can you give kind of just a little elevator pitch of who you are, where you're from and how you got started in this crazy acting entertainment business. Sure. So the, um, (laughs) how many floors are on this elevator? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's up to you. It's, you know, I have all day, so I could ride this elevator up and down. (laughs) No, I'll make it a short one. Um, I grew up on Long Island in New York and to parents, a stay at home mom. And my dad was an executive at AT AT&T, very conventional family. I am most definitely the only creative person in the the family, certainly the only one that pursued a career in it. And um, I did a play when I was seven in the first grade, and I was obsessed with my character and getting it right and inhabiting the role and the wardrobe. And my mom was sort of flabbergasted at my response to it all. And she always describes it like, you know, we were watching all these kids who were just kind of bumping into each other on the stage. And then there was you who was just completely inhabiting this other person on my own program. And she said, you know, we noticed that you were very into it, but 
And I certainly had no idea that you could actually, that that could be a job or a career because I had no uh, reflection of that in my life. And so then I started actually studying outside of school when I think I was about 11 or 12. And from that point on, it really solidified that's what I wanted to do with my life. Mm -hmm. There was a brief period where I thought I was going to pursue pursue photography and I was accepted accepted at the School of Visual Arts. And instead I decided to go to Eugene Lang College, also in New York City, to um, study writing literature and acting because I was already at an acting studio outside of that. Gotcha. And so, you know, a lot of kids have that acting bug and, and feel drawn to theater and performing, but how did it for you take that step from, you know, stage and kind of a hobby and a passion to like an actual possible career? I know you talked about getting offered a role on a soap opera that I want to talk about because I yeah. think you actually turned it down. So I, I'm really curious to learn more about how that came about and what what instinct, what like internal natural intuition was it that was leading you away from that? So uh, as I said, my parents were very conventional. So my dad was a bit mortified when I announced that I was not going to go to college right away and I was going to go to an acting studio full time. He was beside himself and said, okay, I will, you know, we'll do this for a year and see how it goes and then you'll go to college. So about six months into that, he said to me at dinner, you are not famous yet. You haven't made any money. So let's get serious and, you know, get back to real life. And we had a big argument. And then I said, okay, I will go to college because I want to be an educated actor, which he was like, that is not what I was looking for. So <laughs> I started, I was doing off-Broadway at the time and I got how I got an agent. And by, I cut out reviews of the play that were in the paper in the Daily News. I don't think it made the New York Times at the time. I think it was the Daily News and another New York paper. And I cut out those reviews and sent them to a bunch of agents with my picture and they came to see the play. And I, that's how I got my first agent. And in working with them, they had an affiliate in Los Angeles and I had booked a job on a soap opera and was about to do a play. And I met with the, the LA affiliate came to New York to meet some of the clients. And he said to me, you should come to LA. I mean, you, you should come, you will work immediately. So I said, no to, I turned down the, the, um, soap and the play and went out basically on spec really. And then I, how did it, I went out for a week, I think just to see, and I tested for various TV shows, which is a very hard place to get to when you're first starting out. So they, even though I didn't get those jobs, they said, this is the place for you. So I went back to New York, turned everything down and moved out to LA, only knowing one person, my friend Jennifer, who was a playwright. And I lived with her for six or eight months, I, I think it was. And a, within two weeks of being there, I booked the TV show Blossom. Mm -hmm. And for, I think for one episode, and then they liked me. And so they wrote me into 
several more episodes. And while I was shooting that, I auditioned for Clueless and got the movie and had to stop doing Blossom. And that's how it all started. Wow. I mean, that's kind of like the idyllic dream, right? I mean, I know we're going to get into what was happening behind the scenes. I know nothing as really as perfect as it seems, but that's, that's wild that things kind of worked out that way going out. I think that's so brave to go out there on spec and, you know, I, I definitely think that I always had a very clear vision that it was what I wanted to do. And I simply, there was nothing that was going to stop me from doing it. And I was so clear in that intention that I think that gave me an inadvertent kind of bravery, but it just, it just, to me, it was always what, that's what I'm going to do. And um, it definitely was. And I also think that I, I, at that time, and I'm sure still today, I was at a great advantage coming from New York with the training that I had and just the the backbone that I had gained from, you know, being up against everything in New York City all the time. It's it's a grind. And even when you're young like that, you know, when I was 19, 18, 19, 20, 21, it, um, you know, you just build up this resilience and a kind of a, a real focus, I think. And it was it was a great advantage for me showing up to L.A. with all of that. That's a really good, great way to look at it. It's funny, kind of like in retrospect, I think, at least for me being older, I look back at stuff I did in my early 20s or whatever. And like, how the hell did I do that? Because something about like, you know, you get older and then you're like, nope, never take that risk. Right. (laughs) Kind of a blessing. And I mean, I don't you know, I'm not in the entertainment industry, but I think this is right. And correct me if I'm wrong, like you shoot pilots and you do all this stuff and you have no idea if it's ever going to see the light of day. Is that right? Is that how it works? Uh, that is right for a pilot. Yes. Okay. So okay. Um, pilot, unless there sometimes there'll be pilots that have a, a an on air deal already, you know, for 10 episodes or something. But uh, generally speaking, most pilots, you you have no idea. So it's it's so tough because the process is so long and you when you actually get to get the job and shoot something in most cases you've been associated with it or working on it for so long that it feels like it's a part of your life Mm -hmm. and so when you know and that's just not even to mention all the times that you don't get the job you know all the screen there was one season that I I think I tested 11 times which means that you go through like your lawyers are doing all the contracts you're meeting several times with the studio and the network and doing all of these for, for one that I never got, you know, so I went through that whole process. It's mind boggling, mind boggling, like the, the amount of perseverance and stamina that you have to have is pretty, it's pretty intense. Man. And like, I don't think people know that. I mean, I don't know that. I, I feel like I deal with a lot. I deal with a lot of rejection just as a journalist. And I, I've definitely like, taken many steps on projects I've gotten really attached to and and wanted to pursue and they've gotten killed I mean many times but not to that level that sounds incredibly like you would have to invest so much of your soul because you're inhabiting a character like that's that becomes part of you I would think yes Um, you know in in the times that you actually really love the material because a, a large majority of the time you just want the job right? So you you want a job. 
So when you actually identify with the material and you actually like it and could imagine doing it for five years or whatever the deal may be, um, it's really exciting, you know, so it becomes very personal and you kind of, you, you have to care, you know, there's this, sometimes the philosophy of, I remember working with one manager who was like, you know, you just, as soon as you go in there, then you just throw it out, like throw the pages out, let it go. Don't even think about it. Like go in there and don't care. And I'm like, what, you know, I can't really, it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> you yeah. know, unless the character is somebody who really doesn't give a shit, <laughs> then yep. I no. it work then, but you know, you have to invest yourself in it. And that's just the nature of, of, being an actor and it's not it's why you know many of us can be very unstable <laughs> totally and I mean I mean I get that I think any form of creative work which is kind of the field I'm in as well like I I can't not give a shit like I've tried <laughs> it's yeah. like ineffective yeah, um, yeah so I think it's a double-edged sword for sure and so you mentioned Clueless and I know we we're talking before about I just went to the Clueless live read in San Francisco at Clusterfest and it was just so for anyone who doesn't know like the Bill Graham Civic Center I don't know how what the capacity is but it was it was at a dangerous full capacity like people <laughs> in the stairwells like That's so amazing. I mean yeah just I don't have to tell you like the the enthusiasm for this movie and it's really I mean it's weird because it is timeless like I there's so many movies from that era that the references are weird and they just don't really work anymore and this movie is as unproblematic as it possibly could be in this day and as funny and as wonderful yes it it does feel like sort of being a part of this enigma in a way this kind of like needle in the haystack success sort of thing I mean it really is those things come like once in in a lifetime like it those you know everything is not it's just a rarity but we could I could feel it when even though I had little such little experience at the time I could feel that even though I might not have understood I, I couldn't foresee that it would be a huge success while we were shooting it I definitely felt like everything is working here really seamlessly mm -hmm. and you know you felt like everything, everyone from every department, from wardrobe to sets, to the cinematographer, to everybody, you felt like everyone is operating on their A game and they're working together and everybody's kind of like shifting with what's happening. And t it was just um, clear that it was working. And then as I went along in my career, you see how when, when things feel that way, that's pretty, that's a sign of something being successful. Mm, that you took the words out of my mouth because that was my next question, if you could even sense that there was some magic in it. So that's really cool to hear that you you did have that that feeling about it, even as a really young, kind of new-ish actor. Yeah, I mean, and certainly when the, the first time that I saw it, a group of us um, went to a test screening, which is where they have, um, they show the film before it's released to uh, basically a target audience that doesn't really know what they're going to see of the public. And so Alicia, Paul, Justin, and myself, and I think Donald might've come as well, all sat in the back of this theater and watched it for the first time. And then I went, whoa, 
Mm-hmm. And I said to Alicia, you're going to be very famous. Like, this is, <laughs> this is great. And the crowd loved it. And they didn't know anything about it before. And it was just clear that it was this charming and bright and smart gem, you know? I can't even imagine what it was like to be a part of it. I want to talk more about the process of filming and, you know, promoting and all of that. But I know when we've talked before, one of the things I really connected with you about and the reason I wanted to talk to you, one of the reasons I want to talk to you was that you've been so outspoken and honest and transparent about um, your eating disorder. And that's definitely something I relate to and understand and have been there. And I know a lot of that was kind of wrapped up in the time that you were filming this. So what makes sense for you, like chronologically, like, did, do you want to talk about kind of how the eating disorder first developed and how that, you know, played into, into filming or what came first, I guess? Yeah. So I, when I was in New York and in college and, uh, auditioning and, um, doing theater and all those things, I started to, at a certain point, that's really when the anorexia started. Um, I think like I always had a, in high school, I remember late junior high, high school, I remember controlling my food, but not really having, uh, understanding the emotional connection to that and, and the control connection of that. Like I didn't really know why I was doing it. And, but it wasn't something that was problematic per se. And then when I was living in the city and, you know, went from being a big fish at my high school, you know, in a small pond to this tiny fish in this very large pond of New York city. And I think I got overwhelmed and, um, and my perfectionism took over and all of that. And I started to slowly really, really control my food and simultaneously, I started to get some success and that was, you know, it was sort of this perfect storm of I'm, my body's starting to do this, get smaller and smaller. I'm starting to get some attention and then I associate these things and then I moved to LA and then from that nerves, I just started, it just, I was, I was completely in the throes of my anorexia when I got that job. So I, you know, I would get, um, but at the time, because it was earlier on, I suppose, um, I felt like it was, I mean, you always feel like you're in control of it. Um, but I, we would, you know, I would have fitting wardrobe fittings and then you don't actually wear the clothes for several weeks and they would do fittings and they, you know, alter the clothes. And then by the time I wore them, they were too big. And so they'd have to take things in. And, you know, they, the people don't realize the, the, the dangerous things that they say, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, you know, they would say things to me like, oh, you're so skinny, but you just look great on film and you look great in the clothes. Like we can put anything on you. So it just perpetuates this, this idea that I'm doing the right thing. Oh man. I am like nodding my head off. I can't, like, I wish you could see me because it's. That has so been my experience. And I mean, yeah, when my eating disorder developed in high school, it's like, I got a boyfriend. I got so many compliments. I could shop at the places I wanted to. And I mean, even into adulthood, like having, I don't want to call them relapses, but like, you know, times where the eating disorder would struggle. Yeah, it would, you know, there's, it's ups and downs. And I, I know that some people can 
say that they're in full recovery and they've never thought about it again. That hasn't been my experience. Like I've definitely had ups and downs and a lot of, you know, I've experienced during the downs is when I get the most, um, you know, the most feedback of people feel very free to make comments and give you compliments. And, um, yeah, there's just still a really big misunderstanding around, I think what's appropriate to say. And like, I don't know, it always creeps me out. Like it feels like people feel they have an ownership of your body to be able to say anything about it, you know? Yeah. I think it's very strange. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I, I probably err on the opposite side of that to the extreme where I never, I never comment on people's bodies or Mm -hmm. even how they look really. I'm so aware of saying, because I just feel that it's, it's so immaterial most of the time that I, I just, I just won't do it. And I am, and that, but that is a direct result of my anorexia and my recovery, right? Uh Where I know that those sorts of things don't really mean anything. So sometimes I have to be aware, you know, if somebody is actually looking for that, like somebody who's you know, a, 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 a normal who doesn't have any eating issues and they've been, you know, on a diet or trying to take care of themselves. And, you know, they want to hear you look great, you know, specifically you've lost weight, you look great. And I, I still struggle with even saying that because I, I'm so conscious of how, how twisted those things can become. No, totally, totally. Oh my God. I have to like stop myself from talking over you because I'm so, (laughs) I'm so (laughs) eagerly agreeing. And I've definitely, I've had that exact same struggle of, it's hard to take yourself out of your history and your reality of, you know, it's not, this is not where I want the conversations to go. It's not where I want any dialogue to go around weight, but a lot of people live on the complete opposite end and our culture lives on the opposite end. It's like, yeah, like the biggest loser, like it's such a victory, like weight loss is the ultimate goal. And that's all people want to hear. And it's, it's really hard to navigate I think for anybody, but especially anybody who's struggled with body yes. image or an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, and you have a daughter, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I have, I don't have kids, but I have a niece. And so I, I don't, sometimes I find myself wanting to say like, you look so pretty, you look so, and I, ha- I kind of want to stop myself. I, you know, it's funny. I, I never, uh, tell Scarlett that she looks pretty or I never tell her friends that they look pretty. I, I choose something else to say. So I will, and, and I don't know, as I'm saying this, I'm wondering if now that's why Scarlett, you know, certain, she hates dresses and she's not very girly. And so it really, if she, so whenever she wears a dress, people are like, Oh, what a pretty dress. And so she finally started saying to me, I don't, I don't want to wear this because people are going to say, what a pretty princess. And what about, and I said, you know what you say to them, Scarlett, you say, I am not a princess. I am Scarlett. That's what you say. (laughs) And I say, I wouldn't like it either. I don't like it when people say that to you. And I don't like it if they say that to me. So you are, it doesn't mean, but it's a tricky thing, right? Because you don't want them to feel it's so complicated, but at the same time, I feel like it's, maybe it isn't that complicated. You know, we just, you put the focus on something that isn't about the externals. That's really the the basis of it, which I think anybody who's sane, 
should really be coming from that place. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, it is, it is, compli- it is, and it isn't complicated. You're right. Because I think the way it's complicated is I think, I think people should feel confident in their bodies and feel attractive. Like, I think that's important, but I also feel like placing all the importance on it is where, and that's kind of what our society tends to do is where things go off the rails. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, it isn't because it, it really isn't about that. And I'm not quite sure how we have evolved into it being that way that American culture is 100% based upon that. And now, you know, with the proliferation of reality TV that began so many years ago now, you know, and, and, and social media and selfie taking and all these things that it just creates even more of a focus on these things that are, that again, like I enjoy, I, I want to look good. I take care of myself. I, I wear makeup. I do those things, but I, I, I try to keep them to to uh, only the 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 degree of importance that they should have, mm-hmm. where it's I'm just taking care of myself. It isn't my only value in life is what I look like. You know, that's uh, that is just a spiral that you can't you will never win at. Totally. Well, I'm, I'm so, it's so nice to hear you speak that way now. Cause I know we're, we're kind of going back in time a little bit to when you were not thinking that way. And when the eating disorder was really, you know, uh, it, it's strongest. And so it, it is really, it's like heartwarming to hear that the progress that people could make. It know? really, there, there, there is an actual rewiring of your brain that has to happen. And that for me was vital to my recovery. And it took, for me, it took a lot of therapy and the right nutritionist and the right psychiatrist and continual support until I was able to actually give that support to myself. And, you know, it's a, it's a really insidious, insidious disorder because you have to, it's something that you have to look at every day, something you have to deal with every single day because it's, you can't survive without eating. And, you know, it's not like you can just, I'm not suggesting by any stretch that alcoholism or drug addiction are easy things to deal with at all. But at least you can say, I just can't have that, you know, Mm -hmm. and you just take it out of the picture. But it's, it's complicated with food oh, and the body because we're living in our own bodies all the time and we need to feed them. So it, it really had to be a rewiring and a, and a remembering of what I wanted out of my life, what I wanted my day-to-day life to be like, what my goals were, how I, how I wanted to be perceived in the world. And I had to literally stop the thought the like stop the train of thoughts that would happen and it took a long time a long time and diligence it's it's so much fucking work it's yeah yeah it's It's so much work and I think that I mean I've had that thought so many times is much easier to get into it than to get out of it oh oh, yeah it's super (laughs) simple it's a real easy slippery slope to go down. No, you're totally right. It, I had that thought so many times, especially during the harder parts of recovery of like, this fucking sucks because you have to eat. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. you know, like it, it's what you said. And it's not to diminish the, 
you know, the struggle that people who deal with, you know, substance abuse go through, because that's a completely different animal. But it is crazy that you can't abstain from your vice, which is food, you know, Um, it's really hard. And so without going too much into, you know, the nitty gritty details of how, you know, how bad it got, I know that there was a specific incident that kind of set off recovery for you, or at least the desire to get better. So at what point, like, had Clueless already come out? Like, where, where, when did that happen? So I, in, in the middle of shooting the film, I went into the hospital. Uh, I did not, it wasn't, I wasn't an inpatient in the hospital, but I went um, to basically the emergency room because I almost had a heart attack from not eating and taking laxatives. And I, it was a, a bad scene. And I had, um, I had a couple of days off from shooting. So, uh, and I was petrified that I was going to lose my job. Right. So in, in the beginning, my impetus to get help was so that I wouldn't lose my job. I didn't want to wind up literally in the hospital and having to stay there. And uh, so I, I got started to, I found a nutritionist and found various people through, um, other 12 step friends I knew that were in other 12 step programs that helped me find these people. But I really, um, you know, that first six months or so was just negotiating the whole time with the disease and basically absolutely, absolutely obsessed. And it, it was the blanket thinking about food and my body all the time, no matter what I was doing, no matter where I was, I was 100% incapable of thinking about anything else. And so I didn't really get, and that's just kind of part of the beginning of recovery. I feel like, um, you know, it reaches this crescendo where it just overtakes you. And so I, I started to kind of go backwards. I gained, uh, I, I started to lose more weight and, um, something happened when we went to, the, that screening that I just spoke, that I spoke about earlier with, uh, of Clueless, the test screening where we sat in the back row. And after we left all of us, we were, we were walking up this staircase. I remember, and I think it was Justin said to me, Eddie, cause they used to call me Eddie. He's like, Eddie, you're like a bone. You're so skinny. You got to eat something. And it was the first time that someone said that and I didn't take it as a compliment because we had just come out of watching the film and I knew the film was going to be such a success. And all I saw was, Oh, well they cut a bunch of my scenes. I mean, now I understand that they cut scenes all the time. <laughs> that they're, that's the way it goes. But I was so disappointed and I looked at all of us up there and I said, yep, I'm the skinniest. I'm the skinniest. And that's basically all I get. Like, I don't, I don't get a bigger part in the movie. I don't become more famous. I don't have more friends. I don't get another job. I I just get to be the skinniest. Like, that's it. And so when he said that to me, it really, it really hit home. And I went, okay, this is not, and I had a friend of mine staying with me from Spain and he had known me many years And when he showed up, he was really concerned about me and my health. And I was shooting 90210 at the time. And he was like, Elisa, what is going on here? 
And he actually went to the trouble of reading this book, The Golden Cage. It's one of the old books about anorexia written by a psychiatrist whose name is escaping me. And he went and read this book and he did research and he was like, I want to help you. Like, this is a real problem. And he was at that screening with us. And I said to him, he was leaving the next day. We went back to my apartment. I was like, I'm, I'm going to get serious now about this. And he was like, well, I really hope you do. But it was clear that he did not believe me in that moment. And I was like, no, I, I, I'm, I'm really going to change now. And from that point forward is when I really, I kind of dug my heels in and surrendered and said, okay, this is going to be, this has to be my primary focus. It has to, everything else has to take a backseat instead of feeling like I'm going to do it so that I can keep working. I actually had to say nothing else. Like the primary thing is this recovery. And that's what, how it really started. Thank goodness you had a moment like that. Like I know not everyone has that kind of pivotal yeah. concrete moment. I mean, that's, that you couldn't get more clear than that. And I, I really appreciate how you put it like, oh, that's all I get. Cause I think so much emphasis. I mean, what you said, like your entire world, every thought you have is related to that goal of being the smallest and like sizing everyone else in the room up and constant, like so much mental energy is devoted to it. And to have a moment where you're, when you literally realize that you've basically built your life on a false promise. Yes. uh, That's, that's rough, but also so powerful and And it didn't, you know, it's not like it just was a a magic moment where then everything was easy because at that time, it also coincided with the point when everyone started to get really thin on TV and film. Like it started to be this fad, you know, Ally McBeal started a couple of years later at that time and everybody started just disappearing on screen. And I felt like, oh, I'm the person who's just growing and growing and growing. And I had to be like, you know what? That's just how it is. That's I'm going to be continue to be healthy. I think that's sort of what also made me so vocal about it publicly is I felt like I have to, you know, part of that is is reminding myself when we help someone else or talk about it publicly. It's it's reminding ourselves where we came from and the importance of it. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm so grateful to you for speaking out about it. And at that time too, when it wasn't, you know, (laughs) in vogue to like talk about those issues, but I think being vocal about it, like that starts to at least disrupt the norm around it, you know, like it really was. and, And I mean, is to some extent in different ways, maybe still really accepted as like, well, that's just how it is. That's just how Hollywood is. That's just how whatever is the, you know, women have to fit this specific mold. So I, I really commend you because I think that's so brave to, to start to be kind of, I mean, it's it's rebellious to really even talk about, you know, what it took to fit that mold and how it really almost took your life. Yeah. And I, you're, you're right. I forget that that was a time when people weren't, you know, making their lives open books and talking about everything, you know, in some ways it probably held me back that people didn't want, they were like, Oh, well, I don't want to talk about that. Or maybe we shouldn't hire her or it's too much of, you know, just too much to, to talk about. But I mean, I remember having a meeting with, uh, 
a big publisher. I don't remember. It was like Random House or like one of these big publishers that wanted, offered me a book deal to write about my story. And I was barely recovered. You know, I mean, I wasn't recovered. I was barely in recovery and they wanted me to write a book about, you know, my anorexia and, and recovering and being healthy. And they were offering me a gigantic amount of money to do this. And my manager at the time, who this this particular manager I worked with for a very short time, he like represented some pretty huge actresses that were older than I was. And it, it didn't wind up working out because I was I was too green. Like it wasn't I mean, it wasn't the right match, but I was so a grateful looking back that he was the one representing me at this point because he and I talked about it and he was like, if you do this now, you will be branded as the, you know, he said, they're going to want to have a picture of you on the cover with like a carrot stick and you're going to be, you're going to have to promote this book all over the place and your career is starting. And if you, if, if that's how you want people to see you, that's one thing, but you really have to think about it instead of him telling me, cause I, after that had managers that would have just jumped at the chance for me to make a half a million dollars for writing a book. They wouldn't care what it was about, you know? So I felt grateful that he, he guided me in that way. Cause I, I couldn't, I couldn't have written a book about it then. I mean, I could now, but not then. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that's, uh, that's crazy. Cause I, I think there's a misinterpretation also of like what recovery really is. I think people yeah assume and even in I mean in the medical field sometimes it's like once you hit a certain weight once your BMI restores oh you're fixed (laughs) like when really it's it's like you know my my doctors reminded me and my nutritionist who was absolutely life-saving my nutritionist and my therapist I really credit with saving my life for sure but you know they would say there's a there's a number that there's a weight number that matters in terms of you being able to actually um understand what you're going through. Like if your body is starving too much, your brain can't function well enough to actually accept therapy and to actually be able to get better, you know? So there's a number like that, whatever it is for each individual body, you can't be below this number because your brain's not operating. But beyond that, the number is, has zero relevance unless it's off the charts too high or off the charts too low. You know, yeah. there's, that's the only time that the number matters. Totally. I'm still, I mean, I, I'm grateful that you spoke then, but I'm really, really grateful that you're being honest and, and real now too. Because as far as we've come in some ways, like there's still, even beyond body, and it kind of leads into my next question, just the standards for women and women in entertainment. Like there's still, we've, Clearly, you know, in the past couple of years, a lot of things have come to light and people are more comfortable talking about how women are treated and expected right. to be, you know, just in the world. But let's talk about entertainment specifically. And I'm curious, like, I, you know, with Harvey Weinstein and with all the things that have been happening, people hopefully are much more aware of the obvious ways women are yes. mistreated and put in danger. In your experience, like, are there more insidious nuanced kind of like under the radar ways that women in entertainment are you know second class citizens pretty much oh i i mean i think it's just it's so ingrained in the the fabric of the business that you can't it's impossible to uh, to separate the two there's just uh (laughs) i mean you you can't I mean, I, I, I don't even know what, what to say because it's, it's so inherently in there. 
you know, mm-hmm. when you, especially, so all through my twenties in uh, playing these characters that were always very feminine and obnoxious and wealthy and concerned about their exteriors. I mean, Sabrina, I played essentially the same character for three mm-hmm. years. So, you know, doing three years of the series of Clueless, the film and Sabrina, um, even a night at the Roxbury, like all of the things I did during that period. And, uh, even 90210 to some degree, there were all these these characters that are, you know, concerned with the exterior and usually comedic. So people would expect, they would say things to me like, oh my God, you're so funny, but you're pretty. And that's like huge. It's great that you can be pretty and funny. And I remember thinking like, that is so insane. Like who, who, why, why is that so unusual? Like, thank you, but no thanks really. And they also would, you know, I would have ideas about let's try it this way or were we going to shoot this way? And I was very, um, you know, a perfectionist. I wanted things to be good. I was always asking questions and saying like, can't we, isn't there a better way to do this or can't we do this way? And more often than not, I was met with, a lot of sighs and eye rolling and being like, why don't you just wear your short skirt and say your funny lines and you know, that's enough. We don't really need any more from you than that. And it's just a, it's just an inherent thing that's there. And I, I wasn't until I did, I uh, was the voice for Sheryl Sandberg's uh, both of her books, but the first one being lean in when I read this book before I, recorded it, I went, oh my gosh, this is why I was so miserable in my 20s. Like I was made to feel like what I had to say didn't matter. But at the same time, I was supposed to dance and smile and be, you know, friendly and fun, but not too friendly. And then if you're too friendly, it's like, oh, she is, you know, it just, it, it was impossible to get it right. Oh, and impossible to feel safe, really. There were many times, I remember being at a dinner in New York, we were doing, I think it was the upfronts for Sabrina. I, I think it was the upfronts for something. And I walked to the, walked over to a dinner table in a restaurant where one of my agents was with several of their male, male clients and it was all men at this table. And I was there for work as well. And I sat down with them and they all looked at me and like sized me up and down and said things like inappropriate things to me. And I was like, what is going on here? I felt like, I felt like the fucking secretary, you know, the fifties who was like, Hey baby, you know, let me pull your skirt down. I was like, what is going on here? And I, and I didn't say anything cause I didn't know what to say. And I just felt like it made me, you know, not want to go anywhere ever. <laughs> it's, it's so it's bad. Yeah. It's so- my so we went to this the comedy festival last weekend where they did the clueless reading and at security I think it was like we were giving our tickets and my friend who is like the worst target for this because she wouldn't she yeah or the best target because she takes no bullshit the guy that was like checking her in he's like smile smile uh, you're out and then she immediately she like bit back and she's like I don't want to and he's like you're so pretty you should smile dude like she was is he like a hundred I feel like nobody says that anymore do they you know he was young which made it kind of worse like it was yeah it was she was pissed and rightfully so and I was pissed and then 
it's just it's so crazy how it's still even though this dialogue is so you know it's everywhere now we you feel like everyone should know and if you look at it for what it is it's like well he didn't say anything offensive but it's still like oh okay women are here to perform for you and women are here to make you feel comfortable and if someone's not smiling that makes you feel uneasy Right. And like, who would ever say that to a man? <laughs> like, right. Who would ever say to a man, smile, like cheer up. You're, you're so handsome when you smile. I'm going to start doing that maybe. <laughs> yeah. That's actually would be a great test. I'm sure I'll get a lot more dates that way. <laughs> You'd be a lot hotter if you smiled. Did you ever exactly. think that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so insane. And I mean, another thing I've really appreciated about you is that you are very vocal about your opinions politically and beyond body image and beyond, you know, all, all of that, which you're very vocal about, but how, like, what has your experience been around that? Like going on Twitter and, and talking about your views, like, has that been scary? Has that felt natural? So I kind of have, I have a very dear friend who works at Twitter and, um, I have another friend of friends with a couple who are very, uh, involved with Twitter as well. But, um, I, so I'm always mindful of saying negative things about Twitter, but I have kind of backed off from Twitter altogether because I, I'm still on it and I do still, um, but not as, not as much because I mean, I had a really terrible experience with an ex coworker and friend posted very hateful things and at one point, it was during the the Dr. Ford hearings, which mm-hmm. was so, um, it just it just ignited so much in so many people, myself included. And she had posted something that was essentially making fun of this woman, like reposted a video that one of her followers had had uh, put up that was making fun of her. And she wrote something like, oh, greatest entertainment of the day, you know, this kind of, and I was so mortified. I just said like, who have you become? Like, who are you? How, like, where, where did you go? And when she responded with such vitriolic hatred, her, all of these followers started attacking me with these vicious things from personal things to professional things, to my appearance, to my career, to my child, to my, like every area. And it was just like bullets at me when I turned on my computer, you know, hours later. And I was so mortified and so, um, uh, I couldn't believe it. It was devastating and devastating because it was so hurtful and to think that it was ignited by someone that I know. And I just thought, gosh, this is just the most spineless way to communicate with people. It's, you know, people, people sitting alone in their homes that just feel like they can make some statement or get back at people or have zero understanding of what's going on and just be vicious. And it was so upsetting to me because I thought, again, as, as somebody that I actually know personally, that they could be the source of that is so disturbing to me that I felt like, you know what, I am not getting, I am not getting involved politically anymore in this, on this platform yeah. because it's just, it's, it's a waste of time. I mean, 
so I think I saw all of that go down in real time. And that's actually what really, like, I, I was struck by how vocal and candid and fearless you were being. So on, on one hand, it's really devastating to hear that it's not surprising given, you know, the platform. It, it's devastating to hear that that happened to you and that it really kind of shut you down from wanting to be vocal. Cause I really appreciate, I am someone who really shies away from talking about politics or, you know, being, I have very strong opinions of course, but I, I get scared of that, you know? I still very much voice my opinions. It's not that I don't say anything, but I don't I don't engage people that I know are just like looking to be engaged in some sort of a you know, some kind of like a a a, a, a it becomes like an entertainment show. It becomes like a Jerry Springer or something, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't have any interest in that because I don't think that it it, it doesn't elevate anything, it doesn't solve anything. And, but there's this fine line of being able to, if you can have an actual dialogue with someone who has opposing views from you, that's where things really change, right? And I feel that that kind of just attack on people never works. It doesn't work. And it just creates more of a separation and a bigger divide. And then you think I'm an even bigger asshole than you did before. And I think you're an even bigger asshole than right. did before, you know? So it doesn't, it doesn't get us anywhere, but I think there is a way to communicate still what your views are, which is what I try to do mm-hmm. and have, I'm more interested in creating a dialogue than, than, um, you know, sort of spewing things at people. And I'm guilty enough of, you know, in that, in that specific situation, I, my emotions got the better of me because I saw this post and I was already so just furious about these hearings and remembering things from my own life. And I was so, um, I was just so shocked that she could say something so, so careless and so vicious and so cruel that I reacted from that place and, you know, wrote something that maybe if I had given myself a few minutes or even a day before responding, I could have found a different way of stating something that maybe would have been more effective. I'm pretty sure that she was never going to hear what I was saying, but at least it could have like, I could have come away from it feeling like I expressed myself in a way that was articulate and without judgment and with, with real purpose, you know, but it's hard people when you, when we get emotional about things. So now I just have this rule with myself that I, if I'm going to immediately respond to something, I don't do it. I just wait. God, that's impressive. (laughs) I just wait because that circumstance. And I thought, wow, like what if I was, I don't know, 20 years younger or new to anything or like, you know, specifically really susceptible to people's opinions about me. I mean, it could be, it could be devastating, you know? I mean, I'm a grown up. I have a full life. I don't like those things. It was upsetting to me, but it's not like, you know, I I, I get over it, you know, but there are people and in particular, this is what makes worries me about young people in this kind of communication that it's, it can be devastating and debilitating to someone who is, 
particularly lonely or Mm -hmm. struggling with something. And, you know, this kind of blind viciousness and anonymous viciousness often is, it's really troubling to me. Totally. And for people who don't know a world before that, like that's what always like trips me out is that we're kind of the last generation, you know, who remember life before social media and it's so wild to think that like no one will ever have that again no one will know what it's like to not I mean we played Oregon Trail in my computer lab in elementary school like that was our computer class like you know there was no there was the internet but we didn't have access to it so it's so crazy to think that you know kids don't know that there was an alternative to like not everyone saying every single thing that was on their mind all the time I mean, I do wonder if what kind of a shift will happen, though, in the next 10 to 20 years, because even, you know, being in the Bay Area in the hub of all of the social media, digital world, in a funny way, there is a distance from it. Like people don't use it in the same way that I notice when I go other places Mm. and I mean, for example, Johnny Ivey, who created the interface of the iPod, right, which became the iPhone and all of that, basically one of the most, uh, you know, mind-numbing processes that we have in our to do. He, for example, sends his children to the Waldorf School. The Waldorf School, is, their philosophy is no screens until I think it's the age of 18 or something. I mean, it's it's they literally don't use screens. Oh my God. They're like a no screens home. And you know, all the research that you, I mean, this is very much public knowledge, but you, there are, there is tons of research, tons of articles stating how addicting it is and how bad it is for mental development and emotional development and the addiction and the dopamine hits and all of this stuff, which to me seems very obvious. Like if, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's destroying a, a myriad of things about just our, our ability to interact with one another. And especially when young brains are not fully developed yet, it's very problematic. So I'm just curious as to, I think that there might be, you know, we're in this huge upswing and maybe it will, it's not that it's ever going to go away, but maybe there will be a kind of calming of the seas with regard to that, with, with how much it's taken over everything. I know we're running out of time and I always feel like every time I talk to you, I'm like, oh, but we just started. Um, And there's like a million other topics I want to talk to you about. But I know that you've been working, you know, on your own project and your own passion project. And I kind of want to check in on where that's at. And if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. So I'm super excited. I have a film that I wrote and I'm directing that's in development. And we are about we are raising the financing now we're very close we are hopeful that we'll be shooting in the fall is the goal and um i'm super excited it will be my directorial debut um i'm not acting in it though we have half the cast already that i can't really say who it is but they're phenomenal and um i'm really excited in the meantime i'm writing the next thing so that I'll have that ready for when we're done. That's amazing. And this is based on your life, right? So it, yeah, it's based, it's a fictionalized version, but it's based on a one woman show that I did at the Geffen in 2009, 
I think, uh, that is about losing my dad to cancer and how it affected my life and my career and my family. And essentially all over the course of a couple of months, uh, the show I was on was canceled. My dad got cancer and my relationship ended. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I guess this is the next phase of my life. <laughs> uh, and so it's kind of uh, about a woman who loses a lot of things in one day and then has to remedy her life and grow up and uh, and there's a magical element to it as well because the dad comes to her in dreams, these visitation dreams. So they develop a deeper relationship after he passes away than they actually had when he was alive. That's amazing. And I mean, I know this is like not an easy question, but <laughs> looking back after all we've talked about, and it's funny because I usually go to like age 20. That's usually what I base this question on. And you said that's kind of when you started out in Hollywood. So if you could go back and talk to young Elisa in that time, is there any like one single nugget of advice that you wish you someone had told you at that time that you would either give to yourself at that age or to girls, you know, in those young formative years today? You know, this is one of these questions that is Impossible. It's impossible to answer yep. at the same. Why time, I ask it? <laughs> I, what I would tell myself is, and I, but I feel like I did tell myself that, but I wasn't able to really embody it. I think the single most important thing that we can do is to be who we are, and to to imbue the essence of who we are into everything that we do, and that's how you can build confidence and that's where success comes from and uh contentment and joy and uh, the confidence piece is so so important and sometimes it just takes a lot of courage to be who you are and to know that that is going to be our own individuality is what is going to be our success I love that. And I, I mean, your daughter's very lucky because that is to be, to grow up with messages like that from your mom. I mean, that's incredible. And I'm so grateful that you're putting it out there and I am like honored to share it with people. So thank you. I, I could use that. I could use that advice now. So <laughs> I know I, it's one of those things to really remember. That's also one of the things that helped me, um, to get better really from mm -hmm. anorexia. I, I realized like I kind of looked back at my life, my young adulthood, and saw this one person who was expressive and courageous and rebellious and creative, you know, in high school, in my early, in the early part of college. And then I went, where did that person go? Mm -hmm. And I realized, oh, everything went away when I became obsessed with my body and food. Mm -hmm. Like I lost everything else. So it was this this process of remembering this is who I am. And, and it, it, it took my voice and it took my expression. And so I'm so adamant about like when I talk to or sort of counsel girls that are struggling, I always tell them that like you're, th there is nobody else on the planet who is you. And if you suppress who you are, the world is never going to never going to get an opportunity again to, to see what you have to offer it. Mm -hmm. So it's really important. 
It's so important. And thank you so much for saying that and for putting it out there and for telling people that and for telling yourself that. And I'm so, I'm so happy we connected. (laughs) I'm always so grateful. (laughs) Me too. Thank you so, so much. You're welcome. Alisa, thank you so, so much. I had the best time talking with you. I could always chat with you for 12 more hours as we kind of did once I stopped recording. And I hope you guys loved listening as much as I loved talking with her. So if you want to keep up with Alisa as you should, she's sometimes on Twitter as we talked about. You can find her at Red Donovan, red like the color of her gorgeous hair. And you can also find her over on Instagram, same name, at Red Donovan. I would love if you followed me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Michelle K Media, Michelle with two L's. And this podcast has its own Instagram. It's at by a thread podcast. So that's it for this episode. I have more in the bank. I'm editing and I've had so much fun doing this. So thank you all for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.